0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chat bot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So, one thing that I, I love when there is a, a new rational security guest slash co host for the first time on the show is that they actually bother preparing properly. For it, unlike the rest of us who just phone it in every time. Uh, Serafine, I am very impressed by the copious notes that you have uh, put in the planning document. But I, I worry that your takes are going to be too considered, which is against the whole spirit of a of, uh, uh, spicy shoot from the hip rational security.
1: No, I think I can play along. I like the debauchery, but I want to be prepared to. <laughs>
2: If you're not prepared for the debauchery, what are you preparing right, for? Exactly.
1: <laughs> I think that's right. The best also... debauchery
2: is orderly, planned for, <laughs> timely.
1: And all three of us went to law school. I think that – I don't think I was a gunner in law school, but I think I might be in life, so – It's good to prepare.
0: You're definitely a gunner on rational security. (laughs) There you go. It's hard to know
2: to identify gunners now that people are no longer using multicolored highlighters on case books. I felt like that was always the indicator. No, they do. Well, but not in the real world, you see. We're preparing for – the rational security case book has not yet been released. We're working on it. We're working on it, dear (laughs) listeners. But then you can get highlighters to your heart's content.
1: Okay. I think that's fair. I use different fonts on my Word doc. Maybe that's – I'm telling you. just infuriating.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that that just sounds unpleasant for everyone. I mean, is one of them windings? Like, I, I feel like I need to know more about the fonts in question.
1: Uh, well, they're colored fonts, but I guess I can go Comic Sans when I'm really excited about something.
2: All I will say is Palantino or death. <laughs> <laughs> this is
0: going to be an awesome episode, guys. <laughs> I can already tell. <laughs>
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with another of my regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. Sadly, though, we are not with our third regular co-host, Quinta, who is out on some business travel. We are thrilled to be joined by Lawfare's own legal fellow, Seraphine Danani. Seraphine, thank you so much for coming on Rational Security today.
1: Thank you for having me, Scott and Alan and Quinta, who agreed to this.
2: <laughs> who, who faked illness to bring you, <laughs>
1: right. bring you on the
2: podcast, just in case, for the sub-in. Uh, well, we are thrilled to have you. This is, this is, I believe, the first time we've had you on Rational Security. Is that right?
1: I think that's right. I do find it a little intimidating. You guys are quick and spunky, and I like to prepare. So let's see. Let's see how if I can keep up.
2: This is big pressure. Now I'm feeling a lot of pressure because <laughs> I feel like Serafina has way out prepared me for this particular episode. I will say my first Rational Security I was on was before I even came to work here, where I was told to sit quietly in a corner and watch uh, and then they referred to me repeatedly as a as a as a <laughs> member of the deep state <laughs> silently watching over the podcast as they recorded and I was like eh, that's not wrong necessarily This is uh,
1: 1.0 rational
0: security 1.0 1.0 Yeah I'm trying to think we don't talk about those guys Yeah Wait, what, what's exactly. wrong with them? the Anchen regime we we're, we're, we adopt the um, we adopt the Soviet totalitarian model of just literally rewriting history. There was never a rational security one It was always it was always Scott Clinton. Yeah,
2: we tore down that statue of Susan Hennessy. It was never there. We swear.
0: <laughs> I mean, a lot of gold went into that. I don't know. It could have been used for. for yeah, better purposes. we melted no. it down and put it in our citizens' teeth.
2: Yeah. In hindsight, maybe not the best investment, but that's okay. <laughs> Well, we are thrilled to have you, Seraphine, for what we are calling in honor of our missing host, the Qigon edition, because uh, Quinta is a gone, <laughs> astray. Uh, Excellent. We have I you here to fill her. Plotting suits. the
0: overthrow of the U.S. government. I hope. I
2: assume so, but who knows? Really, uh, we'll find out. Something. Something qanon Um kicking her way into pizza restaurants up and down the East Coast. Uh, <laughs> but we are excited to have you here and the listeners here because. Despite Quintus' absence, we have had a quite eventful week, and we are excited to hash through a few of the big stories from it with you today, including our first topic Seoul Authority. South Korea and the United States have recommitted themselves to their close security relationship, including through a state dinner and a new Washington Declaration that confirms that the United States will respond to any nuclear attack on South Korea with overwhelming force. What drove this public showing, and what impact will it have on the nuclear threat posed by North Korea? Topic two, the uncanny X date. Yep. Does that yep. just immediately stream? I think Alan, you are of the right age to have that song yep. immediately stream into your head. Seraphine, yep. probably yep. not. Is this Family <laughs> Feud? No. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh,
0: it does sound a little like Family oh, Feud now that you
2: mentioned it. Kind of up a tempo oh, Family Feud. That's brutal. No, no, that is the theme song to the amazing Uncanny X-Men cartoon from Saturday back in morning. the day. Saturday uh, morning,
0: you would watch eating cereal until Soul Train came on. And then you were like, okay, Saturday morning cartoons are over.
2: <laughs> you were actually 100% right. It was Soul Train. That was, it really, was always really strange. Soul <laughs> Train. <laughs> I'm glad we both bro- grew up on broadcast television to share this okay. moment. Alan, that's yeah. great. Um, well, we are of course talking about the not the uncanny X-Men, but the uncanny X date. Because the debate over raising the debt ceiling took on new urgency this week when Treasury Secretary Jane Yellen announced that the United States might meet the X date, at which it defaults on its obligations as soon as June first. Yet there are few signs of a compromise as House Republicans have dug in on a proposal that demands deep spending cuts while the Biden administration continues to push for a clean ceiling raise. Where will the debate lead? Topic three, Washington contentious. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan gave remarks at our own Brookings Institution this past week, laying out a new approach to international economic policy. What should we make of this new Washington consensus, as some are calling it? For our first topic, we will hand it over to our guest star co-host, Serafine, to get us started. Serafine, please.
1: So last week, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol visited the United States for the first time Uh, It's the first state visit of the Korean president since 2011, and the state visit marked the U.S. and South Korea's 70-year alliance, and it was indeed a cause for celebration. We can cue in President Yoon's rendition of Don McLean's American Pie. But lurking behind the surface of all of this was a more serious matter. Back in January, President Yoon became the first South Korean president to suggest that South Korea have its own stockpile of nuclear weapons as a deterrence against North Korea's. And he didn't just make this up out of nowhere. North Korea has tested six nuclear weapons since 2006, and four of those have been tested under the current leadership of Kim Jong-un. Kim is now threatening to test a seventh one. So despite how credible South Korea's concern may be, President Yoon's suggestion that South Korea build its own nuclear capabilities spooked the Biden administration and was top of mind during President Yoon's state visit. When the visit was all said and done, President Yoon left with reassurance that the United States would come to South Korea's defense if North Korea were to instigate a nuclear attack. They shook on it and sealed the deal by signing the Washington Declaration. So, Scott, let me start start with you here. What's motivating this anxiety among South Koreans to have their own nuclear capabilities? I mean, I mentioned that North Korea is certainly accelerating the rate at which it's testing its nuclear capabilities, but... I also get the sense that there's lacking trust in the United States, that it'll come to the nation's defense in the face of a nuclear attack in the Korean Peninsula. What What are your thoughts? It's a good
2: question um, because – In a way, South Korea is already a very privileged ally of ours and that we have a thing with them that we have with relatively few allies because it's been out of fashion to pursue for the last few decades. But we have dating back to 1953, a mutual defense treaty with South Korea. This is a treaty that says the United States will – and South Korea will mutually view an attack on the other as a threat to its national security and coordinate in a response consistent with their constitutional processes Um, because in the United States, the consensus view more or less is that treaties cannot or should not be used to pre-commit the United States to use of force That's something at least some argue only Congress can authorize and so Congress should have to vote on it separately. That's what that constitutional processes caveat is there. But these sorts of treaties, you know, there are different views on what exactly they do legally. I think probably the best answer is that they provide advanced consent to collective self-defense under international law. It means the United States can act in defense of South Korea because this treaty says South Korea is asking you in advance, hey, help defend us, exercise our self-defense for us under international law, which is a a legally valid thing to do acknowledged in the UN charter. But – Despite having that really, really strong sort of affirmation, something that really only a handful of U.S. allies and longstanding U.S. allies have at this point, South Korea hasn't felt like that's enough. They seem to have wanted this very public demonstration about saying, hey, we actually are willing to exercise on this commitment because the security commitment isn't a hard commitment. Again, it, it commits them to respond appropriately, but it doesn't necessarily say we're going to full-on you know, wallop whoever attacks South Korea. We'll coordinate an appropriate response. The Washington Declaration goes a step further. It basically does say the United States fully intends to respond to any sort of nuclear attack on South Korea with overwhelming force, strongly implying a nuclear response without actually coming out and saying it um, as that is a, a kind of political red line that is difficult to approach or for people uh, – particularly, frankly, democratic administrations that have, have a strong constituency that's worried about nuclear escalation and proliferation. So so this goes that step further. It's It's just a political statement. Uh, it's a kind of joint communique. That's we're important diplomatically. They're kind of the common currency of these sorts of arrangements. But there's no legal binding nature behind it. It doesn't mean the United States is more or less likely to do this except insofar as they may feel more political pressure because they've made this public commitment. But it's really a signal to North Korea saying you really can't do this. Um, I don't think that's a surprise to North Korea. I think it's always been operating under the assumption if it did something that provocative, it would face a serious military response. What I think it it might actually then be be is actually less a statement even directly to North Korea, but more a showing to South Korea and the political constituency of the current government there that the United States is in fact on its side and willing to send these sorts of messages to North Korea, a kind of effort to make them feel more comfortable with the difficult status quo, which is living as they have throughout their entire existence under the shadow of— a hostile enemy on their northern border and, and one that with uh, nuclear capacity and unpredictable leadership.
0: Yeah, just, just to add two things to, to what Scott said. So I, I think, you know, here, as in uh, so many, one might say too many things, uh, Trump's shadow looms so large, right, which is that, you know, if you're the leader of South Korea, you know, you might believe that the current administration is on your side and will take appropriate steps and will whatever um, in the case of a of nu- North Korean attack. But You also have to consider the possibility that a future administration, whether one led by Donald Trump, right, who has, again, a not insignificant chance of winning in 2024, right? There's no way that that's less than 35 percent based on just the general polarized nature of American democracy or someone in Donald Trump's footsteps in his worldview. Right. A a President Marjorie Taylor Greene for all for for all of our sins. (laughs) (laughs) Um, God forbid. you, you know, you you can't ignore that possibility, and f- for those folks, you can't assume that they will abide by any commitments or that they even are interested and even think that South Korea is an important U.S. ally or important enough to to defend it. So, you know, I think that's an understandable reason for why South Korea is pushing and for why. Even a beefed-up statement, even the Washington Declaration, might not be sufficient. Um, and to be honest, I don't blame them, right? Um, you know, I, I don't think the, what the world needs is more nuclear states. But the logic of nuclear proliferation is very complicated, and I, you know, I, I think that this has to be understood with, I think, some sympathy. You know, the, the other thing that I would say is, I'm curious what you think, Scott. I mean, you know, in in, in your remarks just now, you you emphasized a few times that well. Even this beefed up Washington declaration is not legally binding because, of course, there are all these carve outs and these constitutional issues. I, I do wonder, though, if that's the relevant margin to think about, which is to say, do you think at the end of the day, South Korea or a similarly situated ally would feel that much more confident if the document that was signed was legally binding? It, it seems to me that you know, what matters is not whether some document is legally binding or not. But whether you think that at the moment of decision, right when North Korea has lobbed a tactical nuclear weapon or a bigger nuclear weapon into South Korea, and the you know decision for the president comes down to are you going to you know wipe Pyongyang off the face of the map, and who the hell knows what happens after that? Um, that the United States will in fact go through on its commitments, whether those commitments are simply reputational, um, which is actually quite a big deal, or in or additionally quote unquote legal. It doesn't seem to me like that's ultimately what's what's going to matter. And so I'm just curious what you think the margin – I mean, put it this way. What short of giving South Korea access to the button, um, what short of that would serve as a truly credible enough commitment on the part of the United States such that a rational South Korean leader whose fundamental priority is the defense of his nation would say, eh, okay, we don't need nukes?
2: Well – You know, I I think the credibility question is a fair one, and I tend to agree well I don't want to overgeneralize to all international agreements because there are international agreements where the legal binding nature actually is very relevant particularly when they intersect with and are incorporated into domestic legal systems and obligations that's not really the case with the sort of treaty in part because of that constitutional provision carve out you know people might argue to contrary but and they have in the past but today I think the generally accepted view is that they don't they they're not the equivalent of a you know authorization to use military force just because they're approved by the senate the the key relevance there is well how much does do you think the fact this is legal legal-binding nature, means that the country will feel the need to follow through. I think there probably is some plus up on that, but because there is such an old commitment, because of the unpredictability of uh, the last presidential administration to some degree, uh, although it's worth noting, it didn't actually walk back from any of these commitments. Uh, the harder commitments actually walked back from non-treaty commitments more than any sort of treaty commitment, uh, although certainly they nodded towards a NATO withdrawal and things like that. That. Uh, are permissible under the treaty structure but nonetheless are a more fundamental realignment of these longstanding treaty relationships. You know, it's a fair point to say what what will reassure them. You know, one the other part of this that isn't part of the Washington Declaration but I think plays a role in this is that the United States has also agreed to deploy nuclear-armed – submarines to South Korea. This is evidently some sort of compromise where North Koreans were positing maybe we actually redeploy or raise the possibility of redeploying nuclear weapons to South Korea. This is kind of a compromise saying, well, we don't want to put their station nuclear weapons there permanently, but we'll move our mobile nuclear platforms and bring them to South Korea periodically. That has a little bit of a … This is a bad way to misuse this term uh, in the nuclear context, but mutually assured destruction element. In that, it means that a major attack on South Korea will threaten U.S. troops. The, the fact that you have U.S. troops on the in South Korea in large number it fits into that as well. Uh, and so, you know, to some extent, that that also raises the idea that well, you can't really attack South Korea without attacking a significant contingent of U.S. troops, and in this case, a U.S. nuclear platform that very well might be able to respond. And so that ties into this idea of how credible the United States is being. You're willing – the United States is essentially willing to put skin in the game. But again, the United States already has a substantial number of troops stationed in South Korea. So I I think it's much more of an optics game than an actual hard changing the calculus unless there's something about like response time or response capability that this would increase or improve. But my understanding is that that's not the case. But I, I honestly don't know. It's not my area.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not an expert, but I did watch the Hunt for Red October several times, so that's <laughs> enough for rational security. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not obvious to me why moving a submarine closer to South Korea makes any difference. The whole point of submarines is that they hang out wherever they hang out, and then they just lob a ballistic missile, and you know this is all over in the matter of minutes. So maybe this is an optics issue. I, I, I do just want to follow up a little bit on on this in you know, a very interesting point about what it means for a legal for a diplomatic uh, kind of commitment to be legally enforceable. And there, I agree with you, Scott, that there is probably some plus up, as you put it. But I think it depends a lot on the nature of the incorporation to domestic law. And what I mean by that is, if you sign a treaty with a foreign country, and it is implemented in domestic law, and that treaty involves economic issues and and things of that nature, and and, the sort of thing that will mostly be enforced by courts, then it does strike me that having that treaty be implemented in domestic law actually is a substantial addition to its enforceability because the institutions at home will just enforce it. And there's no kind of central institution that can easily override that. Like it's not like the president can do anything about that or Congress can unless they change the law. And that's a big deal. However, when you're talking about a treaty commitment to defend another nation, like the way that's going to be incorporated in domestic law, even if it's incorporated in domestic law is going to be Congress authorizing the president to use force, but ultimately in our constitutional system, it is the president who is the commander in chief. And it's not like anyone has standing to sue the president to go nuke Pyongyang just because some treaty requires it. And this is why it seems to me that the the legality of, or or the, the domestic legal bindingness of these sorts of mutual defense treaties strikes me as less relevant on the margin than in in than in other contexts. And it really just comes down to the question of uh, reputational credibility and whether or not that's going to be the thing that, you know, the president of the United States cares about in the moment of decision, which, which you know, he, he or she very well might. I, I, I do have a question for, for, for you two, though, which is, I mean, what we've been talking about so far is mostly this Washington declaration. But I mean, is it crazy for South Korea to get nuclear weapons?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I wanted to quickly comment on the point that Scott made about the submarines. I think one of the arguments coming from the South Korea side was that North Korea now has the capabilities of uh, long distance missile practices and that it could also attack the United States and that if it were to attack the United States, how could the United States possibly come to South Korea's defense? And I don't quite buy that one because I think it would be very hard to go undetected if you're planning on nuking the US. And then I think that's where the submarines come in and they can do the counterattack and protect South Korea. Yeah, it's a good question about South Korea having uh, their own stockpile of nuclear weapons. I don't know if I'm well positioned to talk about this. But what I will say is I wonder before they even have that conversation if it's worth them having maybe a stronger relationship with Japan, for example. I think that there are quite a few shared interests that have gone unexplored for obvious reasons and maybe even understandably, but there is a lot of potential there that is untapped. I think there is a lot of movement generally in the region with North Korea and then also China's encroachment into Taiwan, where I think South Korea and Japan have a lot to gain by working together. And if that doesn't work, then perhaps there is grounds for having a deeper discussion about South Korea having a stockpile of nuclear weapons. But I just feel like there's so much more we can do before we have that conversation. You disagree.
0: No, no, no. I, I don't disagree, though. I, I assume that by the, you know, when you said it's understandable if South Korea and Japan can't do this, I assume that you're referring to sort of the long historical shadow of Japan's very brutal occupation of South Korea. Right, World exactly. II. Yeah, Yeah. Um, yeah. which, which I don't know, 70, 80 years later is still a very, very sore spot for, again, very understandable reasons.
1: And to be clear, President Yoon did, I think, attempt to start having a conversation with Japan. And I think South Koreans were really unhappy about it. So it is such a, I mean, you know, no pun intended, but I think it is such a nuclear uh, disaster whenever they even start having a conversation or start building a relationship among the South Koreans. So I think public support is just not there.
0: You know, I I think the pun was intended, Serafine, but it's okay. (laughs) It is worth noting though I mean this is one of the two
2: essential roles to come back to your original question Alan, about you know why not nuclear South Korea Th- there's a few roles the United States plays that are indispensable here I mean the United States is the connective tissue between Japanese and South Korean uh, sec- shared security interests in a lot of ways I mean who would be responding in terms of conventional forces if uh, North Korea were to attack South Korea particularly in a non-nuclear way that would require a non-nuclear response which is also plausible They'd be coming from Japan in substantial numbers, right, and other Pacific holdings. But Japan's one of the big places the United States has bases from which it projects its secure – regional security agenda, which includes defending South Korea. So there is a connective tissue between that. It's just mediated between the United States for the exact reasons you noted. I do think you know, there's often an argument – frankly, the United States has often argued that there's a reason to have more regional coordination independent of the United States on mm-hmm. top of this. It's often more around China and Taiwan. I think that North Korea in part because of these strange dynamics. But I think you're right. There's more to be said there. But right now, the United States fills that role.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The other element, Alan, is that there's – you know developing a nuclear capacity is actually itself a really dicey process and strategically because there's a moment – where you have a very limited or or no nuclear capacity on your, and you're on the cusp and that's where your enemy has the maximum incentive to try and strike at you, um, right, uh, and try and keep you from developing that capability. That's the situation Iran has lived in for, for decades now and capitalized on in some ways, right, leveraged um, in some ways less successfully recently to try and say, well, let's have tra- – try and use this threat of developing nuclear capability to try and improve our global position in other ways. you know, Here we're seeing South Korea kind of do a similar thing in a weird way, right? South Korea said, well, we might need a nuclear capability for understandable reasons because of this kind of pressing nuclear threat. The simple reality is that unless it was given one by the United States or another major power, like South Korea would take time to develop certainly any nuclear capability and then develop a delivery system that could resist you know, overcome a potential first strike by North Korea and then have the ability to respond, so as to be an effective deterrent. That's actually, I, I suspect, without knowing, it's not really my area. A pretty tall technological undertaking, and that that's a it's a process to get there during which you're you you're providing maximum incentive to an enemy to try and prevent you from developing that capability. The United States comes in because it's already got all this, uh, and the only question is the credibility of the United States as a response. And While the United States' credibility does suffer and sometimes has to be reinforced through measures, measures like this, in the end, it's, it's proven credible enough to deter really any serious thought by North Korea uh, as taking this sort of action and I kind of suspect it's going to continue to be that way um, for the foreseeable future, which is why South Korea I think will be comfortable with it. Just sometimes often for frankly domestic political reasons I think uh, in, in South Korea. In other places, you need to have these reassurances and public demonstrations to demonstrate, yeah, the United States is still serious about this.
1: Okay. So to round us out here, one final question for both of you. Uh, The Washington Declaration also creates a nuclear consultative group that is similar to what we have in NATO. Any thoughts on its abilities, whether it it's perfunctory or really it, it it's a body that's worth having and we haven't had it for 70 years. So what are its powers today?
2: So that's interesting. You know, I think people tend to poo-poo these consultative groups and committees that are often like the main deliverable out of major international summits. Frankly, is often perceived and, and often accurately that uh, it's because of a lack of any other for meaningfully mm-hmm. deliverable. That's not the case here. Like the Washington Declaration itself is a deliverable But this is a frequent outcome. There actually can be really significant um, Mm -hmm. because you actually really do want to promote engagement at a technical working level between your staff and whatever issue you actually want to build collaboration on if you actually want to get meaningful collaboration. On the military side, which this seems primarily aimed to, although maybe not exclusively, you know, you particularly want – your military is to speak the same language to understand how they're likely to respond to tactical situation to under, have interoperability or at least uh, ability to communicate effectively and protocols set up to deconflict if you were to find yourselves actually operating in a common theater even towards a common objective it can be very hard a very chaotic environment and that kind of deconfliction and coordination is a big part of what the military prepares for and does spend a ton of time doing um, now South Korea and the United States do military exercises all the time uh, I don't know whether they had a nuclear component in the past or not, this seems to be suggesting this that nuclear considerations are going to be incorporated into those procedures and made a priority and perhaps given a separate track of coordination through this process. Obviously, a lot hinges on what it actually does, who actually staffs it, but that sort of process, if it's set up seriously, can be really useful in preparing for, in this case, the most dire of contingencies, which is a nuclear attack of some sort. Again, a lot of this is about optics and a lot of this is about providing reassurances, but promoting interoperability and coordination between the militaries and different civilian officials as well, very important. Uh, And so this could actually be a material Mm -hmm. step in a more effective response if the worst were to come. Hopefully, we'll just never know because we'll never have to respond to that. Um, The deterrence will keep that from happening. Well, from one cataclysm to another – Let us transition back to the home front to talk about our pending economic collapse, perhaps, um, with the topic of the debt ceiling. As I mentioned in the introduction, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said earlier this week that the United States may be approaching its X that is the new name, because uh, I don't believe I've seen x date before in prior discussions around the debt ceiling, Although maybe I just missed it, but the name now being given at least to that day where the United States will default on its obligations. Right now, she's saying it could be reached as soon as June 1st. It's a little hard to predict because a lot of it hinges on tax revenue, um, which I guess is not, not a fixed uh, stream of income as much as we all might like might, might like to pretend it is. And so uh, that is kind of the earliest date, but is a bit earlier than some people were expecting uh, earlier estimates that said, well, it probably will come sometime in July. Notably, that that's They're not mutually inconsistent. She's saying this is the earliest possible warning date. But she seems to be signaling this is a real date of concern. We need to have a plan before June 1. At the same time, though, we really haven't seen much progress towards a, a consensus approach. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, despite a lot of doubts about his ability to do so, successfully corralled the House Republican caucus and got them on the same page for a proposal. That involves pretty draconian uh, budget cuts on a lot of fronts, particularly around environmental and climate issues that are very you know, dear to Democrats um, and is attempting to say, well, this is the terms on which we're willing to raise the debt ceiling. The Biden administration thus far has not given any signs that it is yielding to these demands and instead is insisting on a clean debt ceiling, saying anything else would be irresponsible. Although it's worth noting, the Biden administration did invite Senate and House leaders to uh, a meeting at the White House to discuss a way forward. So at least they're starting a dialogue around a compromise even though there's no signs of substantively what it might look like as of yet. Um, this is all being facilitated by the fact that there are very slim margins uh, in the House on either side. Uh, and so you know the question is who can hold their caucus together most tightly um, to some extent. So it, it is really a potentially disastrous situation. Enter into this the most recent report that we got, I think just yesterday from the New York Times, uh, and they were recording, we're recording on Wednesday, May 3rd, indicating that people in the Biden administration are once again looking back to these other potential fixes that would remove the debt ceiling as a legal issue, basically boil down into two possibilities, one being uh, capitalizing on a somewhat vaguely or awkwardly written statutory revision that might arguably allow the uh, Federal Reserve to print a coin of infinitesimal value of trillion-dollar value and that trillion-dollar coin would essentially allow the government um, to uh, secure funding for its operations more or less indefinitely because they can print multiple coins in that regard, Um, platinum coins if I recall correctly. Uh, And so that is uh, one route forward um, that – the uh, executive branch in theory could take. There's kind of a popular view that's been um, raised by folks on the internet but has gotten some credence uh, and if you look at the statute, it actually kind of kind of makes sense with the statutory language. The other one being section four of the 14th Amendment, um, there's a post-Civil War amendment that basically says that the public debts of the United States should not be impugned. It was set in place to as kind of a counter to the risk that Confederate and former Confederate states will try and disavow. Um, their debts from certain eras, and also concerns that they would drive the United States to disavow their debts to Civil War veterans, and so it says essentially, public debt of the United States should not be uh, impugned. Not 100 clear what that means. has never previously been interpreted to mean that you know Congress can't deliberately um, set a limit that would put the United States into default. But many scholars have argued that's the way it should be read, and that was in fact the original intent of the people who enacted it, and therefore. What the Congress is trying to do with the debt ceiling or at least the House Republicans are trying to do is, is in fact unconstitutional um, and the debt ceiling itself might be unconstitutional and should be disregarded by the Biden administration. Serfine, let me turn to you first on this uh, as I know you're a former employee of the Federal Reserve. Uh, I know you've you've worked on issues in this zone at least in the past. What really are the politics dynamics around this and the policy equities? You know, How big a problem – do you have a sense of how big a problem this really is and, and – I don't know actually if you were uh, around or involved during some of the prior debt ceilings. I'm trying to think through your resume and the timing how it lined up. But you know, what kind of, what is your sense of this as somebody who's seen how some of these things are negotiated on the inside about what the trajectory is around this issue?
1: So one quick correction. I believe you said that the Fed would uh, issue the trillion dollar platinum coin, and it's actually a Treasury that has treasury. legal authority to mint and issue the trillion dollar coin, and then deposit it to the Federal Reserve. And then the Federal Reserve would, you know, have the cash to then pay the government's bills.
0: Scott, Scott, your your lack of familiarity with trillion dollar coin procedure is it's it's well we it's talked depressing. about on the show it's before, and I I, made, I tried really hard to get it right last
2: time, and I did. I was so confident <laughs> that I came in completely unprepared on that point, and only realized mid sentence <laughs> that I couldn't remember exactly how it works. But thank you, Zerby, and I appreciate that.
1: So here's the thing with a trillion dollar coin. It's interesting, and I think that the Fed will not bite, and here's why. The Fed is really protective of its independence, and it's protective of its independence because, I mean, if you think about it, you have an administration that is not like the Biden administration, that's not like the Obama administration, that's not even like the George H.W.W. W. administration. It might be something similar to Trump, and the Federal Reserve does not want to be in the market of doing whatever is whatever the president at the time decides is good for the economy. That could be because the president wants to have a gain in that moment, economic gain to then win reelection. It might be to screw up the economy so that the next guy has to fix it. The Fed is really protective of maintaining its independence. And right now, the issue that's happening between Congress and President Biden and this whole debt ceiling issue, if it were to take the trillion dollar coin, it's essentially picking a side. And that it, that's not something it's in the it's in the market of doing. Uh, it has a dual mandate. It needs to maintain inflation, you know, lower it to the extent that it can, and have maximum employment. That's its mandate. That's what it does, and it stays on track. And that's the way it sort of you know says, "I'm sorry if you're asking me, politician, to do something I can't. My mandate is very clear, statutorily." So I think that might not work. Now, what are the consequences of this? If I can count on my fingers on one hand. Uh, All the things that the GOP has done in the last several years that is really bad for our country, if insurrection is number one, I would say this is number two, number three, no doubt. Uh, We have to really think about why the debt ceiling is important. And what I'm hearing on the right every single time we have a debt ceiling issue is that the government is spending more than it's taking in and it needs to stop doing that. And, you know, well-meaning people on the left are also saying that why is the government spending more than it's been allocated by Congress? It needs to spend less. And I think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of finance. And it's, I think, criminal that in the United States we don't have financial literacy. The U.S. government should not be spending less. It should be spending more. Its borrowing is actually what greases the wheels of the entire financial apparatus. And not just in the United States, but around the world. And how does it do this? It does this by issuing U.S. Treasury securities, which are basically the IOUs. And U.S. Treasury securities are critical to lenders and traders and financial institutions in the United States, you know, foreign governments as well, because they use these treasuries as collateral, essentially. Um, And they do it without thinking twice. They do that because Uh, U.S. Treasury securities are the most liquid assets, the safest assets to invest in um, or to hold. So if there's ever an an economic downturn, you can ensure that your money is safe being invested in a U.S. Treasury security. And basically, the United States government has been able to keep good on its promise. And that's what gives these Treasury Treasury securities uh, so much power. And it's unlike any other sovereign debt. What's happening here? If the government defaults on its debt or even have this debt ceiling standoff that we have every year, it begins to sow seeds of doubt among investors and among the American public that the American government can't keep good on its promise. And what that means is, you know, other people will start looking elsewhere for a safer asset, uh, whether it's to have collateral, whether it's to trade with. And luckily, none of those exist to compete with the might of U.S. treasuries. But a default or something close to a default would undoubtedly screw up our credit ratings. And that's already happened in 2011. We have never defaulted on our debt, but we became so close to defaulting on our debt that in 2011, I think it was Standard and Poor's that said the United States government cannot be trusted anymore, and we are going to, um, you know, give them a lower credit rating, which meant that. The interest rates that the United States government has to pay whenever it's paying off its debt uh, increased more than it otherwise would have. And all of that really does trickle down to people like you and me. So, you know, Alan, you have a mortgage. Interest rates are going to go up. You know, Scott, you want to take out a loan for your small business. Interest rates are going to go up. America is going to become a more expensive place to live. Now, there's also huge economic consequences as well. I know everyone is talking about a financial crisis, but that's just scratching the surface. If the United States government is unable to pay off this debt, its standing in the world, which is already being questioned, is going to be rocked. There are two pillars that really give the United States a competitive advantage as a superpower or a struggling superpower. It's its military might and its financial prowess. And I think that Republican Congress people who are having the standoff, and they have it every single year, is incredibly irresponsible because it's shaking the foundations that we have to assert ourselves financially and economically. I think this is something that we should be concerned with today. I think we need to safeguard the power of the U.S. Treasury market. And if that means that we tap into the 14th Amendment, then it's something that would be a very noble thing to do now rather than wait every single year and have this standoff. And just for a couple of really lousy concessions that Republicans are demanding of Democrats, uh, we are risking sort of blowing up the thing that actually makes the United States the powerful country that it is uh, at a time when it's losing its relevance.
0: So I appreciate as the person who is usually the burn the debt ceiling to the ground person that, uh, Seraphine can be that person. And I can sort of mediate between Seraphine and Scott. You know, I will say I, I, you know, I I agree with everything Seraphine said. I mean, the one thing that I would add and and maybe sort of tweak in what Seraphine said is when it comes to explaining to the American people why it's a very bad idea to breach the debt ceiling, I I get why the argument of the United States should borrow more rather than less makes sense from like a global financial perspective. I think that's probably not the winning strategy, though, to tell people, right? Because I think people do have kind of a deep-seated concern about spending more than you earn. And I don't think it's necessary to tell people, well, you know, you should raise the debt ceiling because we should borrow more. I I think a much more intuitive uh, explanation is you should raise the debt ceiling because if you're concerned about borrowing – That's a matter of spending. That's not a matter of the debt ceiling, right? That's the, I think, confusion that a lot of folks have, which is the idea that raising the debt ceiling increases America's borrowing when really America has already borrowed or it's committed to borrow when Congress passed whatever spending bills they passed. So if you want fiscal tightening, don't do it at the debt ceiling stage, right? Do it at the stage of spending because that's the point at which the United States has. Created those liabilities for itself that if it were to renege on would cause all this kind of financial panic, right? Um, And and I think that part is the, in framing it that way, underscores, I think, the fundamental dishonesty of the GOP position on this. Because again, they are more than happy to spend just as much as Democrats do when their guy is in power, as we saw in the Trump administration, which was no one's idea of a fiscally restrained administration. You know, the, the fact that they spent their money on tax cuts does not mean that they were any more fiscally conservative than spending your money on you know, some sort of spending or social program. The other thing that I would say is, and and here, um, I, I think that uh, I, I can't do any better than quote that great masterpiece of early 2000 cinema super troopers. <laughs> I'm, I'm freaking out, man. Yeah. I'm freaking out. It seems increasingly that the United States will default on its debt. I, at the very least, it seems very unlikely that the Republicans will agree to anything that approximates, not just a, you know, forget a clean debt ceiling increase, but a debt ceiling increase that does not, again, gut spending and sets a precedent for the same fight the next time that the Democrats are in the White House and the Republicans control one house of Congress. I mean, a lot of this is because, you know, the Republican Party has gotten quite extreme, But also because the price of Speaker McCarthy's leadership, um, which he got on the 4073rd vote, I've totally lost track. Was it the 18th at this point? I I don't remember. It was a very large number, was devolving a huge amount of power to rank and file Republicans. And in particular, um, allowing any individual of the caucus to vote to unseat the Speaker, Uh, which means that um, at any moment, any Republican Um, Any MAGA Republican who doesn't want to raise the debt ceiling one cent, either because of cynicism or because of some very confused ideological commitments, can use that leverage to force a vote on the speakership. And I think what we've learned from McCarthy's career is that what he wants more than anything else is to be speaker. He has very few real ideological commitments and his main commitment is just to his own career as speaker. And so I just don't see a world in which the Republicans, you know, we we get a better pro- we get a substantially better proposal than the one that the Republicans passed. And so then the question becomes, how does the administration respond? And you know, I think I I think that there are two ways of, of viewing the issue. Or, or kind of two 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 frames. I think the common frame, I think is the one that you scott. Raised when you were introing you were this topic is that there are three things that could happen. We could default on our debt. We could use some legal tools to avoid that, whether it's the trillion dollar coin or the 14th Amendment. Or, and I think this is kind of the unspoken third option, the president could just say, Nope, I'm just going to ignore the debt limit because this is a national emergency and something, something, lock in prerogative and like, you know, quote Lincoln about you know, should the republic fall so that, you know, should, should every law be violated so that one may stand? Okay, I'm really butchering this quote. <laughs> but there's a relevant Lincoln quote on this. And I actually think that's not quite right. I think there are just two categories. I think either the debt ceiling is breached, or the president does something that is basically unconstitutional, or so marginal, and so um controversial, that it might as well be the same thing. That doesn't mean that I don't think the president should do that, right? I think the last time we talked about this, I was very much on the side of, of, you know, do whatever you have to do. But I don't think that games, you know, games around the trillion dollar coin or 14th Amendment interpretations that have been dormant for 160 or 170 years will really avoid what will be a profound constitutional crisis if and I suspect when the president says, screw it, we're printing more money because I refuse to cause a Great Depression.
2: uh, I don't like being put in a position to argue the other side, uh, but I'm going to. Uh, in part because I think I genuinely think there is a strong element of alarmism that is very much warranted around this issue but that is easy to extrapolate to the idea that June 2nd, you know, the United States will enter an imminent collapse of the global economy. I'm not sure that's actually the case. If there is a default, I don't think that's the way it works. I don't think SP degrading, frankly, treasury ratings is going to make much – actually has – like it certainly hurts the United States economy. I don't think it necessarily deep sixes it. My suspicion is that there's a window where the United States could uh, default on its debt. But if, as long as it gets its act together relatively quickly and then takes steps to – uh, you know, make its uh, the people who own its debt full uh, from any, any payments or any back payments they may be owed, which is what they've done with appropriations lapses in prior cases, and for the most part, um, and they have a pretty established record of doing. You know, uh, there are ways you can manage the damage. That said, it's a serious situation, right? I don't buy the Schmidian prerogative element of it for for that reason, um, because you can cast a lot of things as a dire emergency. And the Schmidian
0: prerogative gets extremely easy, and it becomes very dangerous. Um, what if instead of calling it the Schmidian prerogative, we call it the Lockean prerogative? Does that make it feel better? It, does that make it, you feel it, better? It, it's Lock, not Schmidt Yeah, don't worry. I,
2: I don't. I don't think. I don't think it does. <laughs> Um, it's it's liberal. Yeah. And it and it is, you know, it, more fundamentally though, you know, I do think it's worth also looking at these these legal arguments. Because I think they both actually have a, a fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. Although that problem is tied with with not like the logic of the law, but who is going to review it, which is ultimately the Supreme Court, right? The statutory fix of the platinum coin fix, totally a way you can read the statute, the executive branch can read the statute. But we're in an area in an era where the Supreme Court has asserted that, well, we don't let agencies read statutes in ways we think might not clearly reflect the will of Congress around major questions, uh, and it seems quite clearly this is a major question, right? Um, you know, the Constitution says that the Congress has the power to take on debt. Uh, Congress has the appropriations power. In fact, the Constitution actually prohibits appropriations except by law. So, you know, the combination of these two things clearly says this is a pretty central congressional power and. Major question, doctor, I think would be a problem for approaching that, right? You also have the constitutional fix, you know, makes some sense. I actually see that this could very well have been the original intent, but it is interrupting a pretty fundamental precept of how we think of constitutional structure, which is that Congress has the power of the purse. And then that can include the power to mishandle the purse, right? Mm-hmm. And I suspect Supreme Court's going to be, I, I think that actually, and this is a little bit of a reversal from the last time we talked about this a while ago. Maybe there's a little bit more of an argument there that you might get more people on board with on the court. But I think there's going to be a lot of understandable resistance, not necessarily even a partisan valence to saying, are we really ready to disrupt this longstanding principle based on new reading, of fairly broad language that also isn't clearly you know, operationalized um, by the 14th Amendment? It says this shall not happen. But there are other parts of the Constitution that do things like that, like the emoluments clauses. And we've seen how hard it is to enforce those and how frankly willing the court is – is to let those things go unenforced if there's no clear operative mechanism for doing it in the Constitution. Um, I think that's a problem, but that problem might well apply here and and courts seem comfortable with it. Here's one thing I think the executive branch could do though, and this strikes me as the lowest hanging fruit approach to maybe getting around this for the time being and one way the court might be willing to accept. That's to use constitutional avoidance. Maybe the 14th Amendment you can't read or is a hard sell or you're worried it's going to be a hard sell to read as a hard constitutional prohibition on a debt ceiling limit. But it doesn't mean to me that it's not a reasonable reason to read ambiguous statutory language that doesn't expressly say, oh, no, this appropriation of new funds isn't also an authorization to take on additional debt to pay for this and to say, well, look, if nothing else, this establishes a presumption that Congress generally wants us to stick within our debt consistent with the 14th Amendment and we're going to read statutes that way unless Congress expressly says otherwise. This is kind of a – I don't want to say dirty trick, but a little bit of a dirty trick. The executive branch does all the time. Constitutional avoidance is used to adopt unorthodox readings of statutes regularly, um, particularly in like the war powers national security context, but, but in other contexts as well. But I'm not sure here that's not going to be an approach that maybe makes sense if you're forced to take this sort of action, in part because it's an easier sell to the courts that may not want to disrupt the constitutional structure. But here you're just flipping the presumption, right? You're saying Congress can still do this if it wants to. But it has to affirmatively enact that into law. Maybe a future Republican Congress will with the cooperation of a Republican president. But right now, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen on President Biden's watch in all honesty uh, or in all likelihood. Uh, so at least gets President Biden out from this particular problem. So that strikes me as the likeliest legal route the administration could take and maybe the only really plausible one. There is a standing question saying who could actually yeah. sue over this. I'm not sure Congress – frankly, just the House of Representatives couldn't. Um, we saw them establish standing to sue to challenge law around an appropriations clause violations in the border wall context. That was a decision that was wiped out in the D.C. Circuit, but that's a conclusion the D.C. Circuit panel reached at least. The same logic I think would say that the House could probably sue here, although the borrowing clause is structured differently than the appropriations clause, and that might be a difference maker. I'd have to think about it a little bit. But I'm not sure we can be confident the House isn't going to be able to bring this to the Supreme Court. Who else would have standing? I'm not sure exactly, but I suspect the court. Would we'll be hesitant to say no one has standing to challenge this, but the court might be willing to go along with what is essentially a statutory argument, but one that's a little doesn't claim you know as broad authority as the mint minting a platinum coin argument, as opposed to constitutional restructuring. Alan, what is what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I, I will say that the statutory interpretation issue has been the one that I've been thinking about actually the most as well for the last couple of weeks, and I think something like that is is probably the best argument the administration has. You know, part of it you, and, you know, you can couch it in different ways. You can couch it as a constitutional avoidance interpretation hooking into the 14th Amendment. You can also just count you just you can just couch it as a you know there 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 are many of these canons of construction. You know, one of them is no elephants mm-hmm. in mouse holes, right? The idea that Congress does not make big pronouncements that affect public policy without being explicit about it. It's very much related to the major questions doctrine, but it's not about Delegation to agencies, um, you know, this is uh, most famously, or most recently, famously, how the Supreme Court saved Obamacare in King versus Burwell when it uh, declined to read some like weird little tax provision of something as basically invalidating the entire scheme. And 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 I I do think that's probably the the, the best way to go for the Biden administration here. Um, but you're right; it's it's only a trick that works once, I think. Uh, because once you've done that, the next time that you have a debt ceiling increase, right, it's going to be very hard to then interpret that statute in a different way.
2: Only if Congress enacts it differently. That's the real question here.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's what I mean. But, but presumably, if you were to do this this time, then the next, then if there is another debt ceiling fight, right, that results in another one of these temporary debt ceiling increases, the people who only want it to be temporary will be damn sure to make explicit, no, really, this time we mean it. (laughs) We are willing to cause a default. Um, Otherwise, the whole negotiation unravels, which is to say that if the Biden administration does this, then I think they have to make it a priority to the next time that there is a budget process to repeal the debt ceiling. And if that means we have to be in a government shutdown for six months, then, you know, fine. Um, but but this, this this I think this is a trick you can only play once. It's 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 a trick that in its like it's probably constitutional, but like uh, kind of on the line. It shows the danger of this, and and then I think you are obligated to make repealing the debt ceiling your top priority. And you just you have to. I don't to agree with that the- and get rid of the filibuster if that's what it takes.
2: I'm actually not clear there is a constituency to install this actually as a proactive limit. This is a. Something that has been stumbled across since the 1990s um, by usually Republican-dominated houses as an opportune moment for leverage, or which they have an extraordinary amount of leverage. But it's not clear it was ever designed to be that. Right. In fact, actually, the ceiling has been on the book for, was on the book for decades so that encountering these issues, there is even a parliamentary rule – that Congress maintained for many years. I think it was the Gephardt rule, if I'm calling correctly, that basically said, oh, no, when we appropriate funds, we also mean you can take out additional debt. So the debt ceiling is not actually like really a concern here. That got taken away and all of a sudden the debt ceiling became an issue and became a point of leverage. But I'm not sure that means Republicans would get the the critical mass necessary to proactively install it as a new limit. So I actually think you may have a, you may get more legs out of a statutory fix than you might expect. But I'm not sure. We don't really know. It depends on future Congresses.
1: I'm smiling because this is great. Uh, this is actually what economists get really mad about. It's like you guys, you know, are seeped into procedure as lawyers and this is going to take forever to resolve. And in the time, we're going to have our credit ratings go out of control and we're going to have economic collapse and like thanks a lot, lawyers. So that's why I'm just sitting back and <laughs> smiling at this debate. It's beautiful. It's hey, wonderful. The
2: lawyers are the ones who are going to get us out of this thing yeah. <laughs> in the end. It only <laughs> yeah. takes about two yeah. hours right now. i opinion, at least some of the ones I've read. So,
0: so who knows? So we've talked about foreign crises. We've talked about domestic crises. Now let's talk about an attempt to, as far as I can tell, resolve domestic crises by resolving foreign crises. Let's talk about uh, Jake Sullivan's speech at Brookings last week. So uh, this speech uh, was titled Renewing American Economic Leadership. Um, It's an interesting speech. Uh, You can read the transcript. I've read it. I will admit to still not being entirely sure what the thesis is of this speech or rather what the new model for American foreign policy should be. You know, I, I think it was, I, I will say I, I was surprised. I mean, Jake Sullivan is obviously an incredibly talented, impressive, you know, person um, and from Minnesota. So, you know, extra gold star in my book.
2: But inevitably high cholesterol. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, look, 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 it's a lot of cheese. We're not ashamed of that. I, I will admit that, you know, during the uh, 2020 uh, election, and then you know, after uh, Biden was was inaugurated, I was a little bit surprised to find out that someone who is fundamentally, I think, a sort of domestic policy thinker was made the national security advisor. And, you know, not to say that he can't do a good job at that role, but I think it was an interesting signal um, that this administration was very interested in combining those two elements of uh, American policy. And I think this speech is the clearest articulation of that. Though again, I think the details are a bit fuzzy. So let let me ask my first question this way, and let me ask Scott. What do you think this sort of Sullivan doctrine, (laughs) such as it is, is? And, And am I being a little cynical, or is it fair to say that this is actually very similar to how Donald Trump saw the world, except with less gratuitous screwing over of our allies? Because that's kind of how I see what is fundamentally motivating the idea that American foreign policy should fundamentally be about making the american middle class thrive again and you know you know we can we can do it by making america and our allies great again and like that's the main difference which is i mean a striking change and and you know to call back to a rational security episode from i don't know i think several months or half a year ago i think just underscores a surprising degree of continuity between at least on some issues the trump administration and the biden administration
2: yeah, it, it's a good question and I actually do think there's an underlying thesis in this. But it's one that's politically hard for them to say, understandably, uh, and it sounds more, in some ways more dramatic than it is. But I think if you had to encapsulize you know, the one-word thesis of this speech, it's that the Washington consensus, the neoliberal consensus that's driven US and a lot of global economic policies in the 1990s is dead. Dude, that's a lot
0: of words. That's way – Trevor
2: I, I had ellipses in there. So get, get, pull that out <laughs> yeah. of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, what essentially he's saying in, in a lot of words, going to a lot of depth in a very Jake Sullivan way, which I, which I generally quite appreciate and th- I thought made this kind of interesting. But what it all boils down to is amidst all these different strategies and things the administration is doing, the common thread is that we no longer feel bound by the assumption that pushing for more liberalized international markets – is fundamentally in our national interest. That is actually a pretty big departure. I mean that has been a common touchstone since the 1990s, really throughout the whole post-Cold War era of a lot of US and global economic policy. Now, ever was it ever fully a reality? No, it wasn't, not even by the United States. The United States had lots of exceptions to the ways it approached this kind of liberalization framework, right? And we've seen lots of other countries do it as well. And And a lot of these core efforts have stalled around those problems. You look at – for example, you know something that the lawyers listening, certain international lawyers may be particularly sensitive to the kind of not breakdown but gradual slowing and complication of the international investment arbitration regime, um, which was envisioned as a real driver of foreign direct investment uh, by establishing kind of uniform rules or more uniform rules and treatment and providing different remedies for that in the international order, has really become bogged down around these ideas of like, well, what if we have national security interests and what if we have other policy interests, climate concerns, labor concerns that force us to do things with foreign investors' money Are you saying now we can't do those things because we're just going to have to pay them back because of these treaty arrangements that caused all these domestic problems? That's a microcosm of a much bigger set of problems that that are of a similar vein here. And I think Biden is essentially saying, no, okay, we're going to acknowledge that we have these different interests and they require a more complex approach and we're not going to be shy about that and that's okay. I buy that to some extent. But I also think there's a little bit of a problem with it. The reason why – People like the neoliberal consensus. The reason why people liked the cleanness of it is that having that baseline assumption, a driver, is a counter pressure against you know, the idea of agency capture essentially. The idea that you will inevitably have domestic constituencies that will have more political power than foreign consumers and producers that have, that will be encouraged to try and get favorable terms in terms of trade, favorable terms in terms of domestic treatment uh, and that that's going to undermine the overall efficiency of the economic system and that essentially is going to lead to the breakdown of a neoliberal system unless you – and of the global economy and the most efficient allocation of capital within that global economy unless you have a strong presumption against that and are constantly kind of on patrol for this concern about agency capture and other sorts of capture that's, that's stripping away and making a less efficient market. That itself is a little absurd and that is actually the way like people talked about this stuff in the 1990s uh, in a kind of interesting way. It also puts way too much faith in the efficiency of markets. But I do think there's a good argument that markets are often a good thing for the United States. I think they're often a good thing for a lot of people, everyone who's a consumer to a certain extent. You've got to kind of cabin them. You've got to sort of you know, account for their negative effects and maybe that's how you could frame what this is trying to do. But – it, has, it bothers me a little bit uh, or makes me nervous a little bit that there's still not a common thread of saying, but we still want to find ways to globally integrate and create more efficient, if more equitable and fair and principled markets in a variety of ways because that counter pressure has brought more global prosperity. I, I really think it has. It's been inequitably distributed. It's caused a lot of problems along the way and it should be limited to some extent. But global interdependence has has helped a lot of things. You know, the economies grow. Frankly, it's been very important in promoting global stability, I think, in the post-Cold War era. As we're seeing around Ukraine and Russia now, uh, sanctions are contingent and only work because of the global integration. So I, I still think it needs to be a US priority. Maybe we have more trade-offs. Um, but then that becomes harder to sell to other countries saying, well, we have our trade-offs, but you can't have your trade-offs and your caveats. And it becomes much more complicated negotiation. That might be OK. But but there is that thread lost. and And that underlying thesis, the thing they can't say— is that, yeah, this just isn't a priority for us anymore. And that, that's a pretty dramatic shift, I think, in terms of stated US policy. Although you're right, Al, I mean, it started with Donald Trump. In some ways, it started before Donald Trump, but Donald Trump was the first to to say it out loud. Uh, and this is a continuation of that in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. And I also think that a lot of foreign pundits are thinking about this as well. And Jake Sullivan doesn't really give their perspectives. He seems to suggest that our partners are in line with some of our policies. And Uh, When you're reading Twitter, when you're watching some of these interviews, I think the international community is quite frustrated because in their mind, they're thinking, okay, the United States has been saying for 40 years that these are the rules of the game and markets are efficient when we play by these rules. Free trade is good. And suddenly they're no longer winning. And the game that they invented needs to go and they're going to change the rules suddenly and they're going to root it in uh, domestic revitalization. And we're just not on board with that. I feel like that's a bit of a cynical read to be honest. I I do think that intentions were good when they when the United States established the new world order, established the WTO, opened the WTO to China for example, thinking that if China comes in and has this scaffolding and plays by the rules, it'll be better off for all of us. And of course, China didn't do that, and it thwarted all of the rules. So I think it makes sense for the United States to then come together and say, we have to change the rules. This isn't working. We have a country with immense market potential. If they're not going to play by the rules, then it's hurting all of us collectively. I think it's unfair to expect every one of us to follow WTO and for the country with the greatest population to do whatever it wants. It's a loose cannon, and, and, and I think the U.S. is right to want to change some of the the rules i think where it where i agree with scott is that we are rooting this in our own domestic interests which is fine but we shouldn't be surprised if our partners want to stay pretty neutral they're not ready to pick a side and this is where we get into this tension of de-risking and decoupling for a while we were talking about decoupling and then Jake Sullivan comes out of the gate, and a week before that, uh, Janet Yellen spoke at the John- at Johns Hopkins, and she's also now talking about de-risking. And uh, what I worry about is that this whole de-risking idea is completely incompatible with the timelines that we're facing. Jake Sullivan, during um, his Brookings event, spoke about how this is a long-term goal. It's going to take many years, perhaps decades, many administrations to see that we have this foreign policy come into fruition. But China is working on a different timeline. I think the inflection point where we're going to have to make a decision on how we see China is when it invades Taiwan. And we don't know when that time, what that timeline is, but it's certainly not, you know, decades. It's certainly not 20 years. It could be two years, five years, whatever. And I think that by creating the de-risking policy and, and advertising that, we're misleading industry. Because they're inevitably going to have to decouple and they're going to have to decouple sooner than we think. And I don't know if they're prepared for that. So for example, Apple has all of its operations in China or a majority of its operations in China. Uh, It hasn't yet established uh, a second market to produce its goods. And so you know perhaps the biden administration is going over to apple and to other industry leaders and saying hey by the way guys you know we are saying de-risking but really this is a decoupling issue and you need to have a plan b and we'll we'll help you to the extent that you can but you're going to take a huge economic hit when it comes time to sanction china or do whatever we need to to protect taiwan and i i just don't know if that is being priced in when i spoke to oriana Schuyler mastro she had a really interesting point that even industry is operating at a completely different timeline. So when she goes and talks to portfolio managers and says, hey, guys, like we need you on board here. Like there is a possibility that China is going to invade Taiwan and it's going to lead to a lot of economic challenges for you. And so we need you to be prepared. And they'll ask, OK, well, what's the timeline looking like? And she's like, well, we, we can't be for sure, but maybe a year, two years, five years. And they're like, oh, my gosh, two years that's plenty of time because they're thinking on a quarterly basis. They're thinking of quarter end. They're not thinking 2 years from now. So again, I just think there are these competing timelines and by selling this as a de-risking issue, we might be misleading our companies into thinking that they have a while before they need to really do anything about this China issue. And and I don't think it's uh, I don't think de-risking is really what we're trying to achieve. I think what we really are trying to do is decouple and by talking about de-risking, we're making it more palatable to our European partners.
2: Uh, one quick caveat there: it's interesting to note that in his speech, Jake actually very carefully uses the opposite language here. But I think you're saying this is a little bit hiding the ball, right? Where he says we're talking, we're not talking about decoupling. We still have all these economic ties to China. Right. In fact, we're saying de-risking. He's trying to say this as a response to people saying you're jumping to a kind of statist. But but I take what you're saying. Which which I think might be right, which is this, this might be – maybe it's more of a might than this is, but it is at least preparing the stage for if relations with China go further south, setting the stage for decoupling. When you talk about supply line security, you talk about these other lines. Really, you're saying we need autarky, the ability to maintain our own economic base and that means decoupling or at least severely downgrading dependency when we have hostile relationships. So it's interesting. I mean, they're very aware in counter, countering that sort of message. But but I, I think your point. I think there's, there's a great deal to it to say, actually, yeah, you know, you can say this is just about de-risking, but there's a lot of preparation for decoupling in this and that China's clearly the target for that.
1: Right. And I also am not entirely sure how much our partners are on board with this. So if we're on a spectrum here and far left is we do nothing and the center is we de-risk And on the far right, we are decoupling. You know, I think we're probably further along. We're in between the de-risk, decouple zone. And I think our partners are in right smack dab in the middle. And that might be fine. But the problem is that our industries might be preparing for decoupling in the future. I, I say might, you know, to your point, Scott. But I don't know if European companies are doing the same. And so when it does inevitably come time to pick a side... I don't know if our partners are going to pick the side that we expect them to. Because, in the same way that we see a connection between economics and national security, so do they. And if their companies have great exposure in China and they've done nothing about it, then their leaders might very well choose a side that surprises us. And, you know, Macron has said as much and then tried to walk it back. Germany also seemed to suggest that they don't want to get involved. And again, I, I go back to Oriana because she made a really good point. When I asked her, some of these countries don't want to pick a side. What would you say to that? And she'll say, "You the option to not pick a side has come and gone a long time ago. You have to pick a side. And in fact, by not picking a side, you've picked a side because you are continuing to do business with China. And you've said enough by just doing that. And so, again, I I think there are a lot of economic concerns that uh, world leaders have right now. And if countries are not preparing to, you know, have their own productions in countries outside of China, then they're going to be forced into a corner. And for good reason they might have to at least play neutral, quote unquote, which essentially is support China. And, and that shouldn't come as a surprise, I don't think, to us in the future.
0: So I, I just want to end this conversation sort of with one reflection, which is just zooming out and making sure that we appreciate the the trade-offs inherent in going from a kind of doctrinarily pro-free trade agenda to whatever this new Washington consensus is. You know, Scott, you mentioned earlier that that the benefits of free trade were inequitably distributed, and that's absolutely correct in the l- richer countries. But what's interesting is when you zoom out across the globe, you see that really this was one of the greatest humanitarian projects of human history. I mean, hundreds of millions of people, if not billions, have been taken out of poverty, um, a lot of them in China, but certainly not exclusively in China over the last 30, 40 years uh, because of this. And none of this is to take anything away from the sort of wrenching economic dislocations that you've had in developed economies. But that is, I mean, there aren't that many hockey sticks in uh, human history, and this is one of them. And, and I think it's important to appreciate because. You know, last month, Ezra Klein wrote a, a great uh, column in which he criticized uh, what he calls everything bagel liberalism, uh, which is a tendency in, in certain progressive circles in the United States to try to sort of attach, to try to try to take a policy for one thing and try to attach every good thing you possibly can to it um, in a way that undermines the the, the 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 core of it. And I worry a little bit that although you know, doctrinaire free market people are very annoying and they over rotate on the, you know, holy nature of the market godhead, et cetera. All of that stuff, I totally agree with you on. You know, when you look at things like bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, creating the supply chains to take, you know, the infrastructure we need for the energy transition and make it as cheap as humanly possible, right? Um, You know, solar panels that are not free, but approaching that because they're not made in the United States, frankly. It does concern me that moving away from that will just complicate trying to achieve some of these foundational goals. Again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it and the devil is always in the details, et cetera, et cetera. But I just want to flag that there really are trade-offs here and we should be clear about that. And, and, you know, I think to... to, (laughs) to Trump's credit he was willing to be quite honest about that and i think in a similar way bernie sanders right who obviously is very different than trump but there's a certain kind of similar populism here was was equally clear about that and um i, I think the the some of the uh, the um, opaqueness of jake sullivan's speech comes from the difficulty of the biden administration for the reasons you scott mentioned that being quite as clear about those trade offs
2: i think that's i think that's well said well, folks, that brings us to the end of our conversation for today. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us today?
0: So I am listening to a great book called The Right. It's by the uh, the journalist Matthew uh, Continetti. It came out last year, and I'm listening to it now uh, as an audiobook through Libby, which is, again, I'm going to continue to flog this app because it allows you to listen to audiobooks for, for free through your local library. It's fabulous. Um, and it is a, an intellectual history of the kind of conservative movement, not the Republican Party, but specifically the conservative movement in the United States from about World War I to the present. It's written by someone, you know, Continetti is himself, you know, within that movement. He, I think he worked for the Weekly Standard. Uh, I think he's, I think, I think he, at some point he mentions that uh, uh, Bill Kristol is his, his father-in-law. So he is hardly an unbiased observer, um, though he is very much kind of a uh, never Trump type figure. And what I really like about this book is that, you know, A, it it does what it claims to do, which is describe one of the most important movements in American political and social thought. It does so by being very honest and not shying away at all from the real, you know, racism and xenophobia and et cetera, et cetera, and conspiracy theorism that has often been a a part of the American right. Um, But it also brings out those features of this thought that are uh, quite noble, I think. And, you know, as someone who is not himself a conservative, I, I don't find accounts of conservatism that sort of just rooted in its evils to be particularly compelling or interesting. Um, and so I found this book to be just really, really quite excellent. So yeah, I h- highly recommend it for a sort of very um, interesting uh, view on this important stream in American, in American thought. But now, now I want to <laughs> know why Seraphine is smiling.
1: No, I thought that was interesting.
0: She's lying. No, it sounds, sounds very interesting.
2: Well, for my object lesson, I'm continuing my trend of refusing to endorse anything intellectual. And I'm going to go to some straight consumer goods. That may be made in China, but I kind of don't think so. I don't know. I have to check on that. Uh, now we're talking about this. But I have discovered some new shoes. I've had these shoes for a while. I think they're phenomenal. And I'm going to share them with you. This is a brand that your wives and girlfriends, male Rational Security listeners, Will, m- maybe familiar with your female friends, they've been making women's shoes for a very long time. It's mm-hmm. called Rothy's that women love. They're like flat and they're nice and evidently they're very durable, which is great. But they make men's shoes now too. And I bought a pair actually like a year or two ago and I just it occurred to me, these are phenomenal shoes. And I'll tell you why. i tell you what really pushed me over the edge is that they're made from like synthetic fabric. They're durable. They're very stylish looking. I'm wearing a pair right now. They're super comfortable. I rode a bike in the office in these. I've re- walked home in them. And the thing is though, they're also machine washable. And I was very dubious about how effective they would be. And I have this pair of white shoes that I wear in the summer, hadn't washed all last summer, took them out, looked real dingy and dirty. I threw them in some OxyClean and I washed them this week. (laughs) And they're like brand new. It's crazy. These things are like two years old. They were total beaters. So I will say, uh, you know, gentlemen out there, Go, go to Rothy's. Get yourself some pairs of Rothy's. They're phenomenal shoes. I can't endorse them enough. Could come in wide sizes. My flipper feet are kind of squeezed into these things a little bit. But they're still pretty comfortable because <laughs> they're pretty flexible. And uh, I highly endorse it. Rothy's, come to us. Come buy some advertising revenue. It'll be great. Uh, you know, those Aura Frames people, I bought an Aura Frame. I really liked it. And they came to us and got an ad. So I think you should do it too, Rothy's. Uh, get on this for the Rational Security Train. But even if you don't, I really like your shoes. Do
1: you get discounts?
2: No. but I would, though, Rothy's. Reach out. I was thinking about buying some more pairs, so let me know. But uh yeah, it's phenomenal. We we don't just show during object lessons, but I do occasionally and I'm fine with that.
0: <laughs> Rothys should reach out. Uh the people who make Spetzel makers should definitely Pineapple reach course. out. Um there's a devoted devoted list following here. And I, I will say, I'm on the topic of shoes that the women in your life have gotten you to wear, and you're very grateful. Um, my version of that is Allbirds, something know. my wife wore for years, and I poo pooed, and then she made me go to the Allbirds store, and that is literally all I wear. I think I suspect it's kind of a similar kind of online disruptor, super comfortable thing. Though. I think that's right.
1: Okay, my object lesson is uh, this uh, Sweeney Todd on Broadway. So, I want to begin by saying that I am not a theater buff. I actually loathe musicals, but I am very supportive of my partner who loves musicals. And I find them to be incredibly contrived. Um, The songs are inserted in random parts, not to move the plot along, but just to have a song and then people break out in song and dance you're
0: such a gross no, yeah. so, I mean, I, they break out in song
1: and dance and I don't understand the lyrics I just have people yelling at me and I I think I get very anxious and I, and I and I, want to be happy like everybody else but I don't know what they are saying so I get very anxious Stephen
2: Sondheim is rolling over in his grave somewhere
1: well no but this is a Steven Sondheim show well
0: speaking of which I'm also yeah.
1: South Asian so if I want to see someone break out in song and dance I could just go watch a point. Bollywood movie where they have songs and dance down to a science so I am typically no no theater I like the buildup I like going and getting a meal with my partner I love all of that but I do think that I, I find theater to be a little bit overwhelming until I watch Sweeney Todd and I cannot tell you how incredible that show was I thought that the songs were incredible. I could hear the lyrics. They were inserted in the right places to move the plot along. And I think that is a Sondheim magic, to be very honest. Um, The timing, the comedic timing was on point. I think the actors were also incredible, incredible. And I think this is the first show that I've seen. I've seen a few, admittedly not all. And this was the first time where my reality was suspended. I thought that I was watching a movie. And I think that's very rare for a show to achieve because you know there's a backstage. And if you have the nosebleed seats that we typically have in the back, you can see people coming in and out and set design and all of that. And so you're just kind of going there for, again, the song and dance and the yelling. And that's not appealing to me. But this was the only show that I went and I was like, oh, my God, when it ended, I was like, I thought I was watching a movie. And they were able, the producers were able to capture the ambiance, which I think is really hard to do. They were able to create a mood. And I, the only comparison I have is Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy. It was that same feeling, the same darkness, the same Uh, mood of something is wrong and I can't quite uh, understand what it is. I'd never seen Sweeney Todd and the entire, you know, experience was something that I really do cherish. And very few musicals leave you with food for thought, questions about the human condition, even, you know, forcing you to think about your own vices, and I think Sweeney Todd did that. So if you're able to, if you're in New York City, I really, really encourage you to go. It is just a fantastic show. Get those nosebleed uh, tickets. They are a little pricey, but totally worth it.
0: I just love that Seraphine's general response to musicals is kind of anxiety And so Sweeney Todd is the one that relaxes her, which anyone who knows anything about the plot of Sweeney Todd will find. um, It's not (laughs) that it relaxes me.
1: It's that it was so well done. And, you know, I I mean, I can keep going if you'd like me to. But another thing that upsets me about musicals is that (laughs) you have this – I think producers face a real dilemma here where they have to – uh, you know, insert dialogue that's contemporary to reach a mass audience. And it's totally out of place in time. So you have like a 17th, 18th century uh, show. And then there's a, a female lead who is empowered on her own. But then she'll say something like, you know, don't apologize to men like we're in a man's world. And the thing is, like, that that's not what's happening in the 17th, 18th century. And I think when you do that, you're reminded that this is just a show. It's contrived. It's not really accurate. And I think I have a hard time sitting through something that's forcing me to believe and, and laugh and, and... So not
2: really a fiction fan generally then?
1: I am. I, I love movies because it's seamless. But man, musicals are pretty painful.
2: I used to pretend I did not like musicals and then I went to go see musicals and it turns out I quite quite enjoy them. and <laughs> <So>, uh, <laughs> I, I think Stephen Sondheim is generally among my yeah. preferred musicals. I saw a lot of Lloyd Webbers when I was young. I feel like the 90s were like Lloyd Webber generation and... I can't say I was a huge fan. All the Phantom was was enjoyable, but Sondheim, my goodness, Into the Woods was just at the Kennedy Center, and I missed it, and I'm really bummed. Um, but I will take your advice. I think that's good advice. If I get up to New York, my wife and I are thinking about doing a little weekend away. That's a, maybe maybe tickets worth procuring. Well, folks. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page that have links to our past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, be sure to visit us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Ozband of Go Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan, and our special guest, Seraphine Danani, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week.
1: Until then, goodbye.